Will you turn with me, please, to the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 5. I'd like to reflect for a little while today on what we have in verse 19. This verse seems very fundamental verse in relation to the work of the Lord in our hearts and in our churches. Quench not the spirit. We come to the end of the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians and there's a sense in which we come to a crescendo of this letter from verses 12 to 22 particularly because in these verses we have concluding exhortations of various sorts. Modern preaching, I suppose, is not very strong on exhortations. It may be a spirit of the age. Uh, Maybe it's because of modern offence taken by people of being told what to believe or told how they should be living. Don't upset people, especially in a situation in which the church is declining. But Paul here urges people to have a deep respect for those called to be the ministers of the word. For example, 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you, that over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Notice that included in this ministry, there, there is admonishment and exhortation. We have that in verse, in verse 12. I admonish you and esteem the very highly for, for their work's sake. And verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient to all, towards all men. Clearly such things are central in conveying the truth of God, in preaching the word of God. Whether it be a spoken or written word like these New Testament letters. Now the exhortation as we read there in verse 14 is wide-ranging. Comfort, uh, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. Be patient towards them. It's pretty comprehensive there in what is expected to be the responsiveness to the word of God. Positive responsiveness for the good of those who hear. Clearly such things are central then. These are at the heart of spirituality, of spiritual, doctrinal and moral Christians. Morally healthy Christians and Christian churches. So when we look at various exhortations, we recognise their importance for any local church or for any individual professing Christian. Of all the exhortations here that we have from verse 15 onwards down to verse 22, there's a series of exhortations there. For all the exhortations, of all the exhortations, one seems to stand out as critical in relation to the effectiveness of what Paul has stated there in verse 14. It's in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Because it stands to reason that if there's going to be a quenching of the spirit, there will be ineffectiveness in the word 
amongst people, the preaching of the word, there'll be an effectiveness in the life of godliness. This is an exhortation which is stated in the negative, in a do not sort of way. But it implies a positive that must be found in the church among professing Christians. This exhortation would be unnecessary, of course, if it were not possible for people to do just that, to quench the spirit. This carries the serious implication that when we are guilty of quenching the spirit, believers will not be effective in witness for the Lord Jesus Christ or in their worship. It stands to reason. Needless to say, we have to understand what quenching the Spirit involves. And then, how it is to be avoided. The positive side here is that believers should be people full of the Spirit, and by no means quenching the Spirit. Now, it's crucial to understand that the Spirit here, spoken of in verse 19, is the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the third person of the Trinity. We don't speak of the Spirit as an it, but as a he. The Spirit is not just a force of the Godhead. The Spirit is a divine person with divine attributes. And when we think of the work of the Trinity in the salvation of sinners, we recognize that the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit regenerates and sanctifies. The Spirit was, this, was promised by the Lord we have this very clearly stated in John 14 and John 16. And, and uh, the Spirit came at Pentecost, the theologians would say, proceeding from the Father and from the Son. This is precious, a precious and vital reality for the effective work of the Gospel. Clearly. Because if there is quenching of the Spirit, there will not be effective work of the Gospel. And that applies to the individuals, and it applies to the churches as well, who comprise individuals, of course, who are either quenching the Spirit or otherwise. So, not quenching the Spirit is all the more important in the experience of the believer. There's a relation here, of course, to grieving the Spirit. These are there are nuances of difference there, but uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesians in, in um, chapter 4 and verse 30 of, of uh, the letter to the Ephesians, says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And it's very akin to what we're thinking of here in relation to the quenching of the Spirit. So let's consider three things here this morning. First of all, the Spirit is likened to a fire. The Spirit is likened to a fire. The whole idea of quenching here suggests stifling or extinguishing a fire. When a fire breaks out in your homes, what do you do? Well, you quench it with a fire extinguisher, or the contents of a fire extinguisher at least. You hope you're going to quench it completely, otherwise you're in very great trouble. The Spirit, therefore, is being likened to a fire that is not to be stifled, or, uh, or extinguished. It's interesting that when the Spirit came down at Pentecost, he appeared, he appeared with, uh, 
with, uh, appeared on the gathered disciples uh, as four tongues as of fire that sat on each of them. Acts chapter 2 and verse 3. The picture of the Spirit as a fire is a powerful one. Consider fire and what makes it suitable, a suitable picture for the Spirit. Let me mention a few things here. Maybe you'll think of other things as well. First of all, purity. Precious metals are refined by fire. This is a picture of the work of the Spirit in the soul. In the first place, he quickens your dead soul and makes you aware of sin. As he convicts of sin and sin is repented and forsaken, it is like dross being burned away. All the more as he indwells and makes us alive to it. The Spirit purifies from sin. This is something the believer needs for effective service for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is also power. The suitability of this picture of, of, of uh, the Spirit as fire is, is, is evident in the whole matter of power. Fire boils water, powers engines, or used to anyway. What makes the Christian effective for the Lord? Several things. Several things make the Christian effective. Knowledge of the word, obedience to the word, holiness of life, likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ, prayer, perseverance, loathing of sin, the sort of things that, that we have in these exhortations. And this is what the Spirit works in the soul. Not just negatively convicting of sin, but positively equipping and enabling the believer for effective service and devotion. As the fire drives, as it were, boilers, so the Spirit drives the Christian in service and devotion. The Spirit empowers for service. But then there's warmth as well. We warm, ourse warm ourselves by the fire when we are cold. Or well, we used to anyway. Now we have ambient temperature all over the place. But anyway, there is warmth in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit warms the heart of the believer. If we are isolated from a source of heat, if we are isolated from fire, well, we soon get cold. We recognize that in a day like this, very particularly if you go outside the, these sub-zero temperatures, you recognize the great, the great difference and the great attractiveness of being inside and warm. Fellowship is a, warm, is a source of warming for the believer. Because Jesus said on one occasion, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is one of the points and benefits of church fellowship and church fellowships. It ought to be, they ought to be places where believers are warmed, warmed in faith, warmed in their faith, and there will be stimulus and the presence of the Lord through the Spirit in a very precious way from the interaction of, of believers amongst themselves as they are, as they are, as they are regenerated, as they are, as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You can understand that there is a warmth in this. Which is exactly why we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in services. It's one of the stimuli in, in services. 
to, 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 to the, in the experience of those who attend upon the word of God and seek the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, uh, even as they sing the word and read the word and pray to the Lord and interact with one another. And that was something very precious, of course, and central in the experience of the early church, as we have it in, in Acts chapter 2, and particularly, particularly the end of chapter 2, after the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things in common. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. However, besides the, the appropriateness of the Spirit being considered like a fire in relation to purity and power and warmth, there is also light. In olden times, fire, one way or another, provided light and darkness. Candles provided life, light and darkness. The Spirit is the source of enlightenment to the Christian and through them to the world around. The Spirit uses the Scriptures to that end. By His blessing of it to us, we are enlightened. The Spirit enlightens us in the knowledge of the truth. We must have him if we are to understand and spread the light through consecrated lives. We must have him. I mean the Holy Spirit we must have Christ. We must have the Trinity. But, but we must have the Holy Spirit who enlightens and quickens and who gives purity, power, warmth and light to our lives. So that it is appropriate when we think of the quenching of the Spirit, we think of the Spirit in relation to, in relation to, to um, fire. But secondly, the Spirit is not to be quenched. Let's, let's, and let's explore what this means for us, for you and me. We wouldn't have this exhortation if it wasn't possible to quench or hinder this or stifle the Spirit. So how can we quench the Spirit? Several ways. Several ways. First of all, by slowness to believe. By slowness to believe. There's something we should dread, and that is, that is formalism in religion, what might be called nominality. This is a dampener of vital religion, and it's almost killed the church in Scotland, Simply nominality, going through the motions of a form without the power, indifferent to the doctrine or practice of the church. It is a, this is a dampener uh, to vital religion. Dread a nominal or formal approach to, to, to religious life and to Christian faith. How should we expect the work of the Spirit among us if we are doubtful about what God can do, or if we lack zeal in what we say we believe concerning Christ. Wasn't the Spirit sent to lead us into all truth? All truth that is necessary for us. 
when the Spirit is sent to testify concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Saviour? How shall we expect the work of the Spirit amongst us if we are overcome by pessimism about the church and the future of the church and are lukewarm or careless in our attitudes or unclear about the person and work of our adorable Saviour or about the truth of God as it is expressed in the Word of God? So, the Spirit can be quenched by slowness to believe, but also by neglect of ordinances. This is obvious. Carelessness about, about devotion, privately or publicly, privately or publicly, involves quenching the Spirit. We dare not neglect the Word in our lives and its application in our lives. Bible reading, prayer, these are so vital. But if these are neglected, there will be the, the quenching of the Spirit. goes without saying. The same is true if we fail to bear faithful witness or hide our light under a basket. That is quenching the Spirit. But then, thirdly, and, and perhaps most obviously, there is disobedience to the Word. Disobedience to the Word. Naturally, this is a great quencher of the Spirit, to live disobediently to the Word. That is disobedient according to the standards of God's Word, according to the precepts of His Word. Obedience is at the heart of, an, of, of a healthy Christian and a healthy church. Obedience to the word. A careful concern, not just to be hearers, but to be doers of the word. Care in observing ordinances and keeping the Sabbath. For sure, disobedient life is quenching of the spirit. Thomas Manton said in one place, Fire is quenched by pouring on water or by withdrawing fuel. So the Spirit is quenched by living in sin, which is like pouring water on a fire, or by not in improving our gifts and graces, which is like withdrawing fuel from the hearth. Third thing I'd like to bring out to this morning is this. The believer is to be on fire for the Lord. The believer is to be on fire for the Lord. If the Spirit is like a fire not to be quenched, then believers must be positively stirred up to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. How can you be a fire on fire for the Lord? Very figurative language, of course, picturesque language, but, how, but there's a, there's a real, real, realism behind it. How can you be on fire for the Lord? Paul says to the Ephesians, and this is an exhortation, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. These are to be found in the life of the professing Christian. We are to be on fire with these. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gent faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
It's the possession of such that make the Christian a burning fire and light, bright light in this world. We call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, and so it is. But really, when you read carefully through it, you begin to realise that this book is better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there wouldn't be a church in Inverness. And there wouldn't have been a church in those days in Jerusalem either. Effective Christian work clearly is done by men and women full of the Holy Spirit. Spiritually minded men and women. Spirit filled men and women. Men and women who have zeal for God according to knowledge are full of zeal for the truth of God and for the worship of God and for the people of God and for the day of God. A lively Christian congregation comprises lively Christians who fall into that category of walking in the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit, having a regard for Christian life which is based upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul, the Holy Spirit that gave the new birth initially, the Holy Spirit that gives regeneration and gives, and gives, and gives um, the power to live a holy life and a witnessing life. They're zealous for the things of God. They pray ceaselessly for the help and power of the Holy Spirit. They constantly look for the quickening and awakening from above. Surely you want that for yourself and for your congregation. But how will we be on fire for the Lord? Using this picture, continuing to use this picture. Well, first of all, by lively faith. By lively faith. The believer lives by faith and not by sight. Faith in Christ, the Saviour. They are to keep the fires of faith stoked well by diligence in reading the word, prayer and fellowship, engaged in all the means of grace in private and in public. Faith must not lapse or become merely nominal like our muscles. It must be exercised if it is to be healthy and strong. And consequently, if the church is going to be healthy and strong, this is fueled by the work of the Holy Spirit within the membership, within those who adhere to the, to, to, to the church, the outward church. And so, and so, you will be on fire for the Lord to the degree in which you have a lively faith, but also to the degree to which you have a lively hope. The believer lives in hope through the resurrection and promises of Christ. A lively hope through grace on the basis of the resurrection of Christ because that is, is the, the, the triumph of Christ over death and over the grave. The fact that our Saviour is not a dead man but a living Saviour and that, that his people are going to be with him. This is their hope. A lively hope is a living hope. Ultimately, it is a hope of glory to come. The present life is driven by this hope. The more the lively hope of the believer, the greater their power in witness 
to things above and beyond. This too is fueled by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life. A lively faith, a lively hope. Well, you'll guess the last, the third thing, a lively love. Of all the marks of Christ the Christian, this is the one that must be foremost. The soul on fire for the Lord is a soul who shows real Christian love. Real Christian love, love for the Lord, for his truth, for souls, for heavenly realities, for the church and its ordinances, for the brethren. Love for these things. Do you have a lively faith, a lively hope, and a lively faith, hope, and love, you see? These three, the greatest gifts. And these are, these are the gifts with which we should be enthusiastic, or concerning which we should be enthusiastic. The more flames of Christian love are found in a person and in a fellowship, the more evidence of the work of the Spirit in the midst, the less will be the deadening formalism and lovelessness and nominality which is found in the quenching of the Holy Spirit and has been the instrumentality of the terrible decline in the church in Scotland in the last century and a half. Well, a church is a serious decline when the work of the Holy Spirit is little known and little experienced or little sought. A church must always inquire if it is not experiencing blessing, just how much the Spirit is being quenched. There is a question. If there is not blessing or if there is a complaint that there is not blessing, what inquiry do you make about it? Where do you start with, with that? Well, you could start here in verse 19. Quench not the Spirit. In some respect, we could say, well, it may be assumed that there has been a quenching of the Spirit, quenched, quenched by tampering or indulging in sin, want of real faithfulness, neglect of the means of grace, living at odds with the Word, not uplifting Christ as he ought to be uplifted within and among us and through us. It is the Spirit's work we need most need in our own lives and in our churches. And it is the quenching of the Spirit by bad attitudes, by careless lives, by low spirituality that we least need. That we least need. It's good, especially in spiritually dull days, to remind ourselves of these things, to be challenged with our own lives by these things. If we are to be a, have a happy and blessed Christian and church experience, then we need to ensure, need to ensure <clears throat> that we glorify Christ in everything. And do not quench the Spirit. There's another side to this that we should bear in mind. And that is resisting the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit is one thing. And Paul is clearly challenging and exhorting the Christians in Thessalonica 
in relation to the quenching of the spirit. But there is also the resisting of the spirit. There's a danger amongst, this is a danger amongst the unsaved. The unsaved in a congregation. Men and women who come along under the hearing of the word and it doesn't make any, doesn't make any impact on their lives. They're not, they, 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 they remain unmoved. This is serious. Resisting the Holy Spirit. It's a danger amongst the unsaved. When Stephen was brought before the council, Martha thinks he said very directly, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did. He's speaking to the church of the day, not the, the Jewish church of the day. He's speaking to the, the church of the, the oracles of God. They had the oracles of God, but they resisted the Holy Spirit. For any halting between these two opinions, and still unconverted, and who are still remain unconverted, there is this exhortation, resist not the Spirit. He is striving with your soul today. Any of you in here who are unsaved, any of you who are unsaved, he is, he is striving with your soul. Here is another day of grace. Here is another day of opportunity for your soul. And he says, resist no more. Resist no more. He says, turn to Christ and be saved. One way or another, we need to pray for the Spirit's power and blessing. And remember that the Lord promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So, how do we conclude? We conclude thus. Quench not the Spirit. Seek the Spirit's work in greater, increasing measure in your life, in your congregation, in your family. And may the Lord give blessing upon his word to us and send the Spirit in great power amongst us. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we thank thee for the revelation of thy word concerning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that we would not neglect uh, to invoke his work in our lives and in our congregation, in our families, in our land, amongst those who are in leadership in our land as well. We pray, gracious Lord, for the Holy Spirit to come and revive the church, to bring to life the embers that are, remain, and that they might burst into a flame of fire. And Lord, that there would be a great zeal for the things of God in these days. O oh Lord, in our lives, Forgive us that we have been so dry and dull and grant, Lord, that we might know the power and grace of the Holy Spirit in great measure in these days. Look upon us then in mercy, we pray thee, Lord. Forgive us all sin and grant thy blessing upon us. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 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 Let us sing in conclusion from Psalm 51, Psalm 51 and verses 8 to 13.
Psalm 51 from verse 8 to 13. Of gladness and of joyfulness make me to hear the voice, that so these very bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. All mine iniquities blot out, thy face hide from my sin. Create a clean heart, Lord, renew a right spirit me within. <clears throat> Cast me not from thy sight, nor take thy Holy Spirit away. Restore me thy salvation's joy, with thy free spirit me stay. Then will I teach thy ways unto those that transgressors be, and those that sinners are shall then be turned unto thee. These verses of Psalm 51, of gladness and of joyfulness, make me to hear the voice. Oh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.